Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter and joining me as always is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great because the next Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, will be released simultaneously in theaters and on Netflix this Friday. It's already in, it's already in theaters. It's already in some theaters. Well, color may yeah. correct it. And to celebrate the uh, the occasion, we are going to count down our top five favorite Coen Brothers movies. And Jonathan is going to get us started here with his number five, which is... It, their second film, Raising Arizona. Son, you got a panty on your head. Just drive fast, kid. The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But (laughs) biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hide. I got more than I can handle. At the time, Ed's little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems. And the answer to all our prayers. He's beautiful. What are you kidding? We got us a family here. It's a comedy starring Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. Cage plays a kind of low rent bandit who goes to uh, into prison, and Holly Hunter takes his picture, and they become a couple. And they decide that they want to start a family, but they are having trouble in that department. And then they have this uh, local um, person that has a bunch of children. And they decide, well, why do they get so many and we have none? So they decide to steal a baby. Um, it's a very madcap film. It has they got the best chances. one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, it is kind of like a live action Looney Tunes. The character, uh, there's like even references to the Roadrunner. Um, and it's just Nicolas Cage. People sometimes forget that he actually is a really great actor when he wants to be. And Cage and Hunter have great chemistry. And it's just a very wacky, funny, funny film. It has great camera work. The cinematography is by Barry Sonnenfeld, who went on to direct his own films like The Addams Family, Get Shorty, and Men in Black. And it's very free the camera zooms around everywhere it goes up uh, a ladder up into the window of the woman screaming when she realizes her child has been stolen and i just actually watched the chase scene because i was going through the coen brothers in my history of cinema class that i'm teaching and i just used it as an excuse to watch scenes from their films and that that scene where he goes to the grocery store and steals the diapers it's just 
wonderful set piece. It's very funny and it, the editing's great. And it's, it, I mean, you could say that the film is a little too over the top and cartoonish, but it really, really works. Um, I was uh, really surprised that Roger Ebert gave it a really negative review. He came out like one and a half stars. I don't know what he was thinking, but it's a, he usually loved their movies, but Raising Arizona, I think is one of the funniest films um, of the last 30 years. And it's, well, it might have even been more than 30 years now. It came out in 87. So let's say 35 years. Uh, it's uh, their second film. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's hilarious. And I think Edgar Wright has said, the director of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and Baby Driver, that it might be his favorite film ever. And you could see kind of the influence, the comic timing mixed with action, mixed with violence, mixed with, uh, you know, playing with genre. So yeah, Raising Arizona, I think, is one of the funniest films they've ever made. Yeah, I think zany is a good way to describe it. it and, like, there are some plot elements in it. Like, there's this, like, avenging uh, biker devil man who tracks down John Goodman and his brother who have escaped from prison. That is just, like, totally ludicrous and, like, doesn't fit in with the plot whatsoever. But it's, like, makes the movie so, like, particular and, like, like nothing else. And... Very Coen Brothers. I think it's one of the, like, the more Coen Brothers, Coen Brothers movie in that everything in it just seems like no one else could have come up with it. Um, like how, and it has a, Holly it has a good mix of... Ed. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. Well, it has a really interesting mix of, like, redneck, uh, you know, these, you know, low-class people, but it's very well-written and almost philosophical. You know, it's just this mixture of kind of dumb characters, but there's kind of an intelligence to the writing and a poetry to it. Yeah, and, like, I like the ending a lot. It's, like, sort of, like, I mean, I don't want to spoil it a whole lot, but, like, Nick Cage, like, giving this sort of, like, looking back on my life in a very philosophical sort of way, and he's just been, like, this idiot character the whole movie. And, like, you... You can tell they genuinely like love the characters they've created in this movie with Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter, and they're such incredible matches for the roles played by those actors. And I don't think, oh no, Holly Hunter is also in Oh Brother Art that one. Those might be the only two movies she's in with the Coen Brothers, and she's such an incredible fit with them that it's a shame she wasn't in more. And Nicolas Cage too, <laughs> he's such like sort of a Coen Brothers actor. That it's you love seeing them in Raising Arizona, and I just sort of wish they had been in some some more ones besides that. And uh, this was the first one of, of many films with John Goodman, and he's just wonderful and all you know just about everything he's in, but especially in a number of the Coen Brothers films. And I just think that it's a great mix of you know, like we said, zany comedy and chases, but it has some really. You know, it's it's not it's one it's definitely one of their lightest films, but it still has some kind of dark humor. And I mean, the basic plot of the film is pretty warped. Yeah, baby theft, but, yeah, <laughs> right. But it's definitely an inter- it's it's one of their just most purely entertaining and laugh out loud funny films. Oh, for sure, it's definitely one of the funniest. And and go... I would say our number four, uh, we have the same number four, is also one of their funniest films, which is well, I need to go to my number five first. <laughs> which is not oh. a funny movie and it's got a couple no, funny moments funny. in it yeah, no. but it's a much bleaker sort of story than raising arizona and my number five is inside lewin davis from 2013 how you doing lewin davis oh hello i've heard your music 
and heard many nice things about you from Jim and Jean and from others. <laughs> you have not heard one nice thing about me from Jean. Oh, it's fairly well, my darling truth. I'm leaving in the first hour of the morning. No, you don't want to go anywhere. And that's why all the same shit is going to keep happening to you because you want it to. Is that why? Yes, and also because you're an asshole. It'll be the coast of California. So it's fairly well. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. Thought you said you were a musician. Another day, another time. It ain't believing. Folk singer with a cat. It's not my cat. I just didn't know what to do with it. Really? So, do you bring your dick along too? I should have had you wear double condoms. You should be wearing condom on condom and then wrap it in electrical tape. It is. It sort of follows uh, a few days in the life of Lewin Davis, played by Oscar Isaac, who is this sort of. He thinks he's like a big musician in the folk scene or the burgeoning sort of new revival of folk in the early 60s in New York. But no one really knows who he is, and he doesn't sell any records, and he's not really very successful. He just sort of performs in these like dingy clubs every once in a while. But he thinks he's such a big deal and that he's so important as an artist that he won't compromise his art. And it just sort of follows a few days in his life as he like goes from you know apartment to apartment because he doesn't have a house and he's just trying to make a little bit of money every once in a while and you know doing performances or trying to record some stuff there's a really funny scene where he records a novelty song with the character played by justin timberlake (laughs) about uh, a potential astronaut called uh, please mr kennedy which is a really classic coen brothers moment but uh it really captures the early 60s new york feel like exceptionally well it seems like the whole movie is just like uh like the cover of uh bob dylan's freewheeling bob dylan just like expanded into like a 90 minute movie which is a really weird feeling and it's set in like the winter and the winter just sort of like it (laughs) just impresses its mood on everybody and everybody's so sad and like depressed all the time and uh I don't know. I think a big point of it is sort of like the pretension of Lewin Davis, and he thinks what he's doing is so important, but the Coen brothers sort of like... Although I think they do have affection for the character, they like constantly sort of make fun of how important he thinks what he's doing is. And that's something that I also saw in Barton Fink, where the character says he's uh, like the representative of the common man, and he wants to write about the common man, but (laughs) whenever like common people interact in his life he's like disgusted by them and i thought that was sort of a, a a through line in some of their work like the pretension of artists and i think they really don't take themselves too seriously so it's sort of funny when one of their characters is an artist who really takes himself very seriously and yeah there's not much of a plot to the movie it just sort of follows lewin over a few days and it's more just about the mood and about like uh a sense of aimlessness. Character study. Yeah, it's a character study of Lewin. And just... It's so focused on him. I think Oscar Isaac might be in every scene of the movie, which is sort of unusual for a Coen Brothers movie, aside from maybe, like, The Big Lebowski. But yeah, what are your thoughts on this one? 
Oh, I saw it in theaters when it originally came out, and it's one of those films that I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I feel like the second time I watch it, I'll like it even more, and I'll dig deeper into it because it's just so beautifully made. I mean, all their films are. They're exquisite on a technical level, and they always have great performances. And Oscar Isaac, I mean, I would say maybe it's the best performance he's ever given yet, uh, even though I've, I've liked him in many things. But I thought it was interesting that the character, it's definitely set like right before Bob Dylan comes in, like it's purposely set at that time period. And I heard that the Coen brothers, you're talking about how they view their characters. I think some people sometimes criticize their films for being a little too cruel and cynical about their characters and they don't really like their characters. But I think in this film, I've heard them say in an interview that they assume that Lewin Davis is like a good artist. He's just not great, and that yeah. he just is on the cusp of like being good. Well, and know? he sort of and, keeps himself yeah. from being great by just being an asshole to so many people. <laughs> right. I also thought it was interesting you talked about how it so evokes that time period in New York. I heard they originally were considering shooting it in like 16 millimeter black and white, making it look like a Maisel's documentary. Oh, wow. Uh, but they decided to, I don't know, they probably thought this is one of our least commercial films. And if we do it that way, it's going to be even more, <laughs> le- you know, even less commercial. But uh, yeah, it's it's. You know, and it has a really good cast <clears throat> besides um, Justin Timberlake popping up. It has Adam Driver, Carey Mulligan, John Goodman's in it. F. Murray Abraham makes a brief appearance. Right. And the soundtrack's great. I have it. I listen to it sometimes. It's um, And all the it, actors it, it, did their own singing and playing, which is sort of unusual. And it's, it reminds me in, to some degree of the Christopher Guest film, A Mighty Wind, where <laughs> the songs are so dead on. They're so dead on. And T, uh, T-Bone Burnett, who they've worked with before, uh, did some of the music on the film. Yeah, the musical performances are like, I wouldn't say they're a crutch of the movie, but they form such a huge part of it. Like, it opens up with the musical performance, and it sort of closes with the musical performance, and they're sort of interspersed all throughout and Oscar Isaac, like, if you've never heard Oscar Isaac sing before, like, he's really, really good. And he does all of his own singing in the movie, and he does all of his own playing, which is incredibly impressive. And it's sort of a shame that he wasn't acknowledged as much as he should have been when it came out. And I agree with you. I think this is the best he's ever been in a movie. And, like, he's sort of become a quasi-star with all the Star Wars stuff, but it's, I don't know, it's hard to think that he hasn't. I wouldn't say wasted his talents, but none of them have lived up to this one since uh, Inside Lemon Davis came out. I did like him in the two Alex Garland films. He's in Ex Machina and Annihilation. And he's in so but, little uh, of Annihilation, though. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's like in a flashback, basically. But uh, he's going to be uh, in uh, playing the voice of Gomez Adams in the uh, new Adams Family film with Charlize Theron. Oh, wow. <laughs> But uh, anyway, well, we both have the same number four, and it's a cult classic. It's a film that came out after their major critical success of Fargo, and it was The Big Lebowski. Wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude, you know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Ah! Employed? 
you like sex, Mr. Lebowski? Is this your only ID? You got the wrong guy. I'm the dude. Your name's Lebowski, Lebowski. Jeff Lebowski, the other Lebowski, the millionaire. I received this ransom note this morning. This is the bummer, man. They want you to take the money and act his courier. Why are you my dirty undies, dude. The whites. Let's take that hill! Why should we settle for 20 grand when we can keep the entire million? I know you're mixed up in all this. Playing one side against the other in bed with everybody. Law them. Huh? Fabulous stuff. What? Who's sitting on a million dollars? We want some money. Ah! Sitting in the trunk of our car. Where's my damn money? Say, dude, where is your car? Who's got your undies, Walter? This is a very complicated case, Maude. You know, a lot of ins, a lot of outs. Is this your homework, Larry? And I would like my undies back. A lot of uh, strands to keep in my head, man. Whoa! Hey, careful, man. There's a beverage here, huh? I like your style, dude. I have no choice but to tell these bums to do whatever is necessary to recover their money from you. They were Nazis, dude? They were nihilists, man. They kept saying they believed in nothing. You figured, oh, here's a loser, you know, uh, a deadbeat. Well, aren't you? Well, yeah. You cannot drag this negative energy into the tournament. Jeffrey. Bond? Love me. Uh, that's my robe. I'm throwing rocks tonight. It don't matter to Jesus. <laughs> this could be a, a, a lot more uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just, it might not be just such a simple, uh, you know? When it came out, people were kind of like, uh, this is not one of their best films. This is kind of just a shaggy dog joke of a film, you know? And people kind of dismissed it somewhat, but people started rewatching it and they watched it over and over and it, had, I don't know what exactly about the film has made it such a cult hit. I think it's probably part of it's because it's one of their quirkiest films. It's very strange. Well, one thing about that is, is like it started off as a cult hit, but I think like at this point it isn't isn't even a cult hit anymore. It's like totally mainstream. Like I hardly come across anybody who says The Big Lebowski isn't one of their favorite movies. And I, I don't know. It's almost gotten to the point where, like, it's so mainstream that I almost have a reaction against it. That like, oh, maybe The Big Lebowski isn't that good because so many people like it. But it is wonderful. It, I, it's one of the films of theirs and of any film that every time I see it, I think it gets a little bit better. It's richer and funnier. And it's, it is it is basically a shaggy dog joke of a film. It doesn't really add up to anything, except the whole point is it's the, all those little things that come together. And that's what makes the film is that there isn't like this, you know, the whole thing of it being like a Raymond Chandler uh, mystery. There is no real mystery. It's no, just kind isn't. of, uh, yeah. And nothing ends up really happening, uh, you know, plot-wise. You know, there's a lot of plot, but it ends up adding up to really nothing. But that's what makes the film enjoyable. It's just the journey along the way. Yeah, and just the character of... (laughs) Not the big Lebowski, it's the dude, played by Jeff Bridges. Which is so funny how, like, much the dude has defined his career. 
that he's become almost inseparable from the role. And every time he plays anybody, it's like, oh, the dude is in a Western when they made True Grit. Or, like, <laughs> the dude is serious this time when he did uh, Crazy Heart when he won Best Actor. And it's well, um, and then it's there was a movie called The Men Who Stare at Goats, which wasn't a very good film, and it was just felt like a Coen Brothers film that wasn't made by them, and it's not very good. Yeah, that was George Clooney, right? I think, which is right. just like Suburbicon, which a lot of people said was a Coen Brothers movie, but just George well, Clooney made it. it. Yeah, but just which George Clooney making it, it just didn't add up to what a Coen Brothers movie should be. It's sort of funny how uh, how much they're tied in with uh uh, George Clooney's directorial career. But yeah, uh, John Goodman as Walter Sobchak is absolutely iconic. He's always going, shut the fuck up, Donnie! <laughs> With his like, crazy Vietnam veteran, he's always pulling his gun on everybody. Amazing. His piece. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I think much like Arizona, this is like one of the most Coen Brothers, Coen Brothers movies where it feels like no one else could have made it and it's just like so particular to them and I don't know. It's, it is a really good movie. And me saying, like, I have a backlash to it, that's just me being, like, a, a snob about it. Because every time you watch it, it's, like, very hard to, like, not be taken away by just, like, the charm of the movie and how, like, genuinely funny it is. And just, like, how <laughs> specifically Coen Brothers, Coen Brothers it is and just how weird it is and how weird the characters are. Like, Philip Seymour Hoffman's, I can't remember the name of the character, but he's like, her life is in your hands, dude. And just, like, the way he delivers every line is so funny to me. And then John Turturro as the Jesus. He's in, like, two scenes in the movie, but, like, he's one of the most memorable characters in almost any other movies. It's It really is an iconic movie. It's, like, hard to describe it in any other word. I tell people that I don't think the film is perfect, but... I think it's a little too long for one thing, but I wouldn't change anything about it. Like the fact that it doesn't completely everything about it works that may, that's part of its charm. It's just has this kind of ramshackle quality to it. And it has such a good cast. I mean, we've mentioned so many already, but it also has Julianne Moore and it has flea Ben Gazzara, uh, the, the real Lebowski is played by David Huddleston. And it's just, I mean, there's so many great lines in it. I love when uh, they're talking about the program that the real Lebowski has and, you know, about the urban (laughs) urban achievers. (laughs) And uh, when Julianne Moore's character, uh, the daughter's talking about it and says, and proud we are of all of them, you know, (laughs) and they're just, and there's, I mean, David Thewlis shows up in a small part. He's been in a few of their films and it's just, it's so quirky. And I love the musical number inspired by Busby Berkeley. It's so bizarre. It's and totally bizarre. I love, <laughs> it's so I surreal. And the, I know. And I love the, 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 the nihilist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we the, don't believe the, in anything. <laughs> yeah. We fuck you up. We fuck you up. Yeah. Yeah, I, and it's one of the great films. It, the use of profanity is so wonderful in the film. I love the scene where the uh, when he when uh, Walter pulls the gun and he and the guy in the bowling alley goes, "Are you happy now, you crazy fuck?" <laughs> there's just there's just so many quotable lines, and it's it, it, there's just something about the film that also one thing after watching it a number of times, I've probably seen this more than any other of the Coen Brothers films, is that. There is this really, you know, a lot of their films have this philosophical quality. There's this almost like religious, um, you know, spiritual quality to it. The dude has become this almost like a, 
you know, a spirit animal for people. I mean, I'm actually an ordained priest, a Dudist priest. I went online and uh, you pay like 10 bucks. And so I can legally marry people. I can officiate weddings because was it's that a thorough process. <laughs> well, I mean, it was uh, I did get I have somewhere a little sheet like a document like people when they graduate from university, it says that I'm an official. Uh, it's called the Church of the Latter Day Dude. <laughs> But I actually have been to Lebowski Fest uh, before. They're all around the world. But I went to one at the original location in Louisville, Kentucky. And that was just full of people that are obsessed with the films. Like every little minor character or line from the film, people dress up. Like they have these puns based – like they had these two women that had um, the – what, what do you call it at the beginning of the film when the, the thing's going across the screen, the tumbleweed. They oh, yeah. Tumbleweeds on their head. <laughs> and uh, there are people dressed as like just like the one there was a woman dressed as the waitress and she was making fake toes for people out of clay. And she would take <laughs> orders and she would bring the toes the next day. So I have a little fake toe, severed toe made out of clay. Um, so and you go bowling at a bowling alley and they serve white Russians and they have <laughs> the white Russians are of... such a funny thing. I can't imagine someone like drinking that all the time. This like milk based liquor. I love such a he... weird thing. Well, I love it when he drinks it and it's on his mustache and he like sucks it off his mustache and, and like the part where he's in the car and he's like, there's a beverage here, man. You know? <laughs> yeah. Jeff Bridges is so wonderful in the film. I mean, like I said before, Jeff Bridges just, He's so flawless, and like you don't, you I, like I think sometimes people underrate him because it, it, he seems so effortless. He's just like, oh, it's it's Jeff Bridges, but he's so good in the film. He's so funny, and it's just such a. I mean, I know a lot of it is what's on the page. I know the Cohen brothers would have every uh and yeah, and like every pause and grunt is written into the script. And if they didn't do it perfectly, the Coen brothers would go, uh, you missed an, uh, there after that word. So they're very, very particular about their scripts. Yeah. And breaking up the tumbleweed sort of reminds me of Sam Elliott as the narrator character, which is such a weird little twist to it. Like he's there at the beginning and he like talks every once in a while. And then at the end, he pops up again and just sums everything up. And it's like, seems like a totally unnecessary character, but Sam Elliott playing it is just so perfect. And such a Coen brothers sort of twist on it to have him doing it. It's just like, again, it's so particular to them. It's just like pure Coen brothers. I'm friends on Facebook of three actors who have minor roles in the film. One of them is the, uh, what is it, Malibu police uh, chief. And he's like, I don't like your jerk-off name. I don't like your jerk-off face. Did you know that that actor is, uh, did you see A Quiet Place this year? No, I still haven't seen that. Yeah, he plays the old man in the film that's in it like, Two and a half minutes. Anyway, he plays the Malibu play. And I also am friends with the man who uh, sma- they smash his car up accidentally because they think it's uh, the, the... This is the, what happens the... when you fuck a stranger in the ass! <laughs> yes, yeah, that ca- he's the guy that, that, you know, that comes out and sees they're smashing his car. I'm friends with him on Facebook. <laughs> and the man. Yeah. Well, you know that when they never, never, never watch any film censored on TV, but especially one like The Big Lebowski, because they cut out all the F words and they change it to this is what happens when you mess with a stranger in the Alps, which doesn't even make any (laughs) sense. It does not make sense. (laughs) And he says it like 15 times. That's a hard thing to censor. 
I know it's one of the um, the films right about two hours long. I think it's one, you know on the list of like twenty five most f words you know in film history. It's up it there with like Goodfellas be, yeah. and End of Watches on the list in Summer of Sam. I think Summer of Sam, the Spike Lee film, is like number three or something. That's sort of funny. Yeah, yeah, Wolf of Wall Street is way up there. We've probably anyway. talked about The Big Lebowski enough. <laughs> Let's move on to your number yeah. three. Okay, my number three was my favorite film of that year, 2009. Their film, A Serious Man. Please, I need help. I've had marital problems. Honey, I think it's time that we start talking about a divorce. Larry, we're going to be fine. (laughs) Professional, you name it. Larry, we've received a number of letters denigrating you and uh, urging us not to grant you tenure. I need help. We're going to be fine. I've tried to be a serious man. We're going to be fine. Tried to do right, be a member of the community. We're going to be fine. Please, just tell him I need help. Please. We're going to be fine. I need help. We're going to be fine. Which I think people can think of, along with Inside Lewin Davis, is one of their their films. Like they sometimes, I think every film they make is what they want to do. But sometimes they do a film like Burn After Reading or Hail Caesar, where they just get every A list movie star and they make a romp, and then they make a film like A Serious Man, which has no big movie stars. It's about a Jewish uh, professor in the 1960s in the Midwest, and I love that one critic said that. Uh, they made it right after No Country for Old Men, and they said that it might be even more bleak than No Country, even though it's a comedy. Uh, it's kind of a retelling of the story of Job. This professor has all these things go wrong in his life. His wife is having an affair. His children don't seem to respect him. He's stuck in this kind of job that he doesn't particularly care about. Uh, or his students seem not very uh, you know, motivated. They're cheating on a test. And it's just so brilliantly written. And Michael Stolberg plays the main character. And he is just like, like I'm so glad they didn't cast like George Clooney in that role, you know, or something yeah, like that. That's someone. the first movie I, mean, I think have... I ever saw Michael Stolberg in. Yeah. And I mean, he has an incredible, like, he was in three of the Best Picture nominees from last year. He was in yeah. The Post, The Shape of Water, Call Me By Your Name. And he he's one of those actors that if you look at his IMDb, like pretty much every single movie he's in is like good. Yeah. Like he's like someone that just like doesn't do bad movies. But it, it, the movie is just it's it's uncomfortable and it's really bleak and it's strange. It starts out with this scene with the the Jewish man Feichel Finkel uh, how do you say his name Feichel Finkel uh-huh. yeah he's in the film it was one of I think it was his last film possibly but it just has all these odd moments I love the part where the man finds the Jewish writing on the in the teeth in yeah. the dentist office <laughs> there's so yeah. many weird touches like that in it I know someone was saying that you know how they I saw someone on Twitter a Jewish film critic wrote one time that you know how, like, on TBS, they show a Christmas story for, like, 24 hours over yeah. Christmas? They said over Passover they should play a serious man. It should be, like, on a 24-hour rotation. Because it's, like, one of the most Jewish films ever made. It's, like, yeah. really Jewy in a wonderful way. Because it's like the Coen brothers going full Jew. Like, they yeah. just love – like, they're they, – it's so, like – it's so specific. It's so – 
of that time. You know, it captures that time period really well. It's very, very funny. It's one of the best, like, Jewish comedies ever made. Yeah, and it uh, seems but... like one of their, like, most autobiographical sort of movies, because they, I know, grew up in Minnesota around that time period, and, like, grew up in a very st- strong Jewish community. And uh, you don't off a lot of times, like, a No Country for Old Men or Fargo or... Uh, like True Grit, they, it seems like they can sort of get into any sort of time period or location and like make it seem like they know everything about it. So Making a Serious Man, which is set in Minnesota where they grew up and in like the late 60s, which is like when they were growing up, it like it really feels very authentic in how it uh and how it portrays the time period in just like a Jewish community in somewhere like Minnesota, which is not something that's represented very often. <laughs> Well, I was going to mention that I have a family friend who uh, went through some hardships who was actually a preacher, and he he found the film almost too close. Like it was, you know, he had gone through hardships in his life and he would, I showed him the film and he really liked it, but I think it hit too close to home. And I thought it was so funny that the only part he actually laughed out loud at was when the rabbi is trying to hold up the big scrolls and he's having trouble. He goes, Jesus Christ. And the preacher laughed at that. That was the only part he actually laughed out loud. But yeah, it's, 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 um, it's definitely one that's entertaining, but it's one that has a much deeper meaning that you can ponder afterwards and rewatch the film. It, there's a lot to dig into. Yeah. Also one, I mean, you could say this about every Coen Brothers movie, but it seems like no one else on earth could have made a serious man and made it as good as they did. Yeah. It's, it's like, that's a, I mean, I feel like we're saying it's about all their movies, <laughs> but that's a very Coen Brothers. That, I mean, but like someone else could have made No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Or someone else could have made, um, you know, Burn After Reading. Yeah, for sure. Maybe. Even Miller's yeah, Crossing. But, right, yeah. Some of their films are, you know, they're kind of t- subverting genre and playing with them. But sometimes, like, I think we agree their worst film or one of their, like, two or three worst films is the remake of The Lady Killers. Mm-hmm. Like, that is something that they, it almost feels like they could have been hired to direct that. I mean, it definitely has their stamp in the script, but it still feels, felt like, why are they doing this, you yeah. know? But what's your number three? Yeah, my number three, which I just mentioned a second ago, is Miller's Crossing from 1990. I believe this is their third movie. From the makers of Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, a world where nothing is what it seems to be. Leo, is he still the boss? The day I back down from a fight, Casper's welcome to the rackets, this town and my place at the table. Casper, can he muscle in? I'm sick of taking a strap from you, Leo. And I'm sick of a high hat! Tom, would he sell out a friend? You shouldn't be confronting Jenny Casper. That's what I've been trying to tell you. I can still trade body blows with any man in this town. Except you, Tom. And Verna. Verna? Is she Leo's girl? What did you tell Leo? I told him you were a tramp and he should dump you. It's like a gangster movie set in... I have no idea what city it is. Prohibition era, uh, yeah, but it seems yeah. like maybe Chicago, maybe New York. You don't even really know the time period because... <laughs> It's just got such a... It feels more, like, about gangster movies than it is about, like, a specific time period or, like, a specific place. It's sort of like... And I've I've seen that's sort of one complaint about it is that it's more about, like, the genre of gangster movies than it is about any sort of character or any sort of deeper message to it. 
But I don't have any really problem with that because, like, as a gangster movie, it works incredibly well. And I really love when the Coen brothers work in genres. And, like, you can tell they really love gangster movies and just the way people talk in them and the way people dress in them and, like, the way they're, like, lit and shot and stuff like that. And it definitely borrows stylistically from, like, the film noir movies of the 40s and 50s. But the plot elements are, like, very much like the gangster movies of the 30s, like Little Caesar and Scarface and stuff like that. And uh, the the plot of it's just, like, insane with the crosses and double crosses and triple crosses and, like, you can't trust anybody. And it's got some really, really good performances, as most Coen Brothers movies do, from uh, Gabriel Byrne and Albert Finney as the sort of Irish gangsters. And then John Turturro (laughs) as Bernie Birnbaum is just incredible. It's, like, a very John Turturro sort of character. And Johnny Casper uh, is John Polito as Johnny Casper is just absolutely incredible. I think he's like the platonic ideal of an Italian gangster boss. It's just <laughs> one of my favorite performances of almost any movie. He's like so perfectly cast in the role, and it's an actor like you hardly see in anything else. But in Miller's Crossing, he just works so perfectly. And some really good scenes, like there's one of uh, some uh, gangsters trying to assassinate. Uh, Albert Finney's character and just like the most ridiculous shootout you'll ever see takes place after that and some really good touches uh there's one part where Sam Raimi who's a friend of the Coen brothers has a little cameo in it in a really sort of over the top scene of like uh the police going after one of the gangs and sort of I mean it's you don't think of it as being like a typical Coen brothers movie but it's definitely one of my favorites and one of their earliest ones but I think it still really holds up incredibly well it's one of theirs that I've only seen once, but I really enjoyed it. And the scene that sticks out to me is that one where the gangsters come in and try to kill Albert Finney. It's just one of their greatest set pieces because it mixes graphic violence and tension with, you know, it's not, well, it is kind of funny because I love the part where he rolls down the roof and he's hanging off and jumps down and he backs up enough that he sees the gangster in the window and he starts shooting him and that causes that gangster's gun to go off and he's just <laughs> being rattled with bullets and it's causing his gun to shoot up the whole house and it's it's just, it's like so dark that it ends up being funny mm-hmm. and they're, re- they're, I mean, I would say that, you know, along with Tarantino and John Woo, there are like some of the great masters that are still making films with uh, cinematic violence. They just, they know how to do violence in movies. They're just often it's, you know, it's really funny, even if it's dark and messed up, like in Fargo, the wood chipper scene, like it mixes, you know, ghoulish kind of horrifying violence, but it's also kind of funny because it's just so, you know, <laughs> it's uh, just over the top as hell. Yeah. And it's just, they have a kind of ghoulish wit about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that scene's sort of a callback to when Sonny gets murdered, the Godfather, and he's shot like a million times, but he's still standing up and he's just like vibrating with every bullet that goes into him when uh, that gangster is killed by Albert Finney in his house. And it like goes on for like 40 seconds and he just keeps like shooting him and it keeps shooting him. And it's like, this guy's definitely dead already, but just like the bullets keep flying. It's totally ridiculous. So are we down down to our uh, our number one and number two? Yeah, I think it's about that time. And we've got the okay. same top two movies, but ours are just flip-flop. Yeah, so uh, which do you want to start uh, talk about my number two? Yeah, let's start with your number two, which is my number one, which is... Okay, well, my number two is No Country for Old Men, 
their film that won the Oscar for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, uh, and Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. It's an adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel. It stars Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin. What's the most you ever lost a coin toss? Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. Just call it friendo. Yes. I don't come back, you tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. I've got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts that are hunting him? I don't know, he ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all out war. You can't stop what's coming. Is this guy supposed to be the ultimate badass? You don't understand. And it's just, it, it is so perfectly made. It's just every scene, every shot, the camera work, the performances, the script, it's so tightly made. It's just like clockwork. It's just so immensely entertaining to watch, even though it's bleak and violent. It just is so incredibly it just pulls you in and the whole movie it's right about two hours long you're just completely gripped the whole yeah, time the momentum to it's incredible it like never slows down and it never lags and no scene seems like unnecessary or like driftwood in it. and it just like chops at such an incredible pace it never lets up i know and it, the performances i mean javier bardem is one of the great like modern screen villains because he's just so kind of odd that haircut you know, and the way he, you know, there's scenes in the film when, when the first time you see it, they're incredibly intense, but like the coin flipping scene. But once you know what happens, it's a very funny scene, too, because he's just <laughs> messing with the guy. And I love the idea that he's just like evil personified, like there's nothing good about him. He's just like this blank slate of evil. And he doesn't have to he doesn't I mean, he almost doesn't seem like he cares about the money he just seems like he's pure evil like he he really is only doing it uh you know from like a nihilistic 
point and it's just there's something really terrifying about his character because he's so odd looking and he's such a kind of enigma of evil it just seems like totally unstoppable the whole time like even if you like you shoot him one time he just keeps coming at you and like bringing up him is like the personification of evil that's like uh one of the main sort of themes i see in the movie is anton chigurh sees himself as like the representation of fate and like he isn't choosing to do this he's just an instrument of like a higher power and he's just delivering what fate dictates to him and the final scene of it when uh llewellyn moss played by josh brolin's wife uh carla jean uh calls out to him that he she says to him uh, the coin. He does this thing where he flips a coin. And he's like, if it, if you call it correctly, you're like life is spared. But if you call it wrong, like I'm gonna kill you, basically. And she says to him, like the coin don't have no say. It's just you. And it's like I think that's so perfect because he sees himself as being like this, like avenging angel, where like he doesn't decide what he does. He's just like a higher power calls him to it. But it's like no, he's just a psychotic murderer, <laughs> just like he wants to kill people, and that's why he does it. And Tommy Lee Jones as the sheriff, Ed Tom Bell, is almost, like, too perfect of a fit for an actor in a role. It almost becomes to the point where you're like, this isn't the sheriff, this is just Tommy Lee Jones. Because, like, he uses the same accent, and it's a Texas guy. And it's, I mean, it's incredible, and it's one of his best performances, but it's, like, literally almost too perfect of a match. And Roger Deakins, with the cinematography of West Texas, I think it's one of the sort of most starkly beautiful of any Coen Brothers movies. And he, he's shot most of their movies, but this is like some really exceptional work by Roger Deakins, who a lot of people consider to be one of the best cinematographers working today. And one thing I notice about every time I see it is like there's virtually no music in the movie, which is like really unusual. It's very sparse. Yeah. And a lot of times people sort of depend on the music to like set a mood or like this is an intense scene, let's have some intense music. But like... If there is music, you, like, don't even notice it. And I, I literally can't not think of there being music for the first hour of the movie, which is just a testament to how incredible it is in the filmmaking, that despite there being no music to, like, set the mood or carry, like, on the plot further, it just, like, totally grips you, and every second of it is, like, <laughs> some of the most intense stuff you've ever seen. And I think despite oh, this, it being this... super bleak, it's a really rewatchable movie. Oh, but talking about intense, the scene where uh, Llewellyn is in the hotel room with the lights off and he's, he has the tracking device and you hear it beeping faster and faster and you see his shadow outside the door and you hear the squeaking and you're like, what's that? What's that? And the, it goes dark and you realize he's unscrewed the light bulb in the hall and you hear the hiss of the air saw, you know, the shotgun. It's just so intense. Yeah, they're they're just masters. I mean, they're like Hitchcock in a way of just building suspense and like set pieces in their film. And like I said, the violence is I mean, I'm a messed up person. I love violence in movies and just the cattle prod thing of him shooting the people in the head. And I love the opening where the guy gets off own and right after he hangs up he starts choking him with the handcuffs and his expression on his face is so terrifying and evil because he looks just like like possessed by evil he's just when he finally gets the last bit of you know life out of him it just it's it's like a really amazing performance i love the fact i saw some interview with um javier bardem and the coen brothers they were talking about who to cast in the film because in the original book they don't describe the character very much visual uh, like what he looks like and they went to javier bardem and bardem said well i don't speak english that well i deplore violence and i can't drive 
and the character, you know, talks quite a bit. You know, there's a number of dialogue scenes. You know, he does talk in the film, and there's you know, it's a lot of him driving around, and he, you know, kills people in horrific ways. His and, body and count is sort of yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you're perfect for the film, and then they <laughs> cast him, and he won an Oscar for it. Yeah, I think this is uh, one of the movies that sort of proves them as like some of the best sort of like technical directors at least if not only working today but like of all time because a lot of coen brothers movies people love it for like how quirky it is and how specifically coen brothers it is and like no one could have come up with it like the big lebowski or raising arizona but like no gun for old men cormac mccarthy book set in west texas just like totally bleak I, not to say that anyone could have made it, but like this is something easily like a Ridley Scott could have made, and he tried to sort of make his own uh, version with a counselor a few years later, but and they do it, they execute it just so perfectly that it's just a testament to how incredible they are as filmmakers, and like the scene you were des- uh, describing in the motel is just like so perfect, every like frame of it and every beat to it is just so incredibly perfect that, I mean, I could see people sort of criticizing it for saying like you know the coen brothers such incredible filmmakers why did they make a movie that's sort of pointless and just about a guy killing people with cattle prods in texas for the whole time but like i mean just i don't care like that the plot might be sort of like reductive or like meaningless or anything like that it's just such an incredible piece of filmmaking that every time i watch it it just totally draws me in and I think it's totally the best movie they've ever made even if it isn't quintessentially coen brothers just because it's just so perfectly executed and it just is such a testament to how incredible they are as filmmakers that other people could have directed this movie, but I don't know if anyone could have done it as well as they did. Right. Well, I think that your number two and my number one film is definitely a film that the way it is, I don't think anyone else could do it quite like the Coen brothers and that's Fargo. I'm uh, Jerry Lundegarden. You got the car? You bet. Brand new burnt umber Sierra. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? Ah! See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? Wait, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something hard, geez. It's terrible. So I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lou. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. Jeez. DLR? No, they said no cops. Here's the second one. So we got a trooper pull someone over. This a new car then, sir? Oh, it certainly is, officer. Still got that smell. There's a high-speed pursuit. We got a shooting. And then this execution-type deal. A million dollars, a lot of damn money. They got my daughter. Are you, hon? Brunch some lunch, Margie. What are those, night crawlers? Oh, yeah, looks pretty good. How's Jean? Who's Jean? My wife. <laughs> well, the little guy, he was kind of funny-looking. You were having sex with a little fella then. Yeah. Mr. Lundegaard. Mind if I sit down? Carrying quite a load here. Where's Jerry? I got your damn money. Now, where's my daughter? Jeez. Blood has been shed. We now want the entire 80,000. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here. You have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. What do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Police! So, is there anything else you can tell me about him? He wasn't circumcised. Oh, yeah? 
uh, which to me, I I think we both agree that Fargo and No Country are their top two films, and you know we have them at different. But to me, Fargo is like one of the five best films of the '90s, and I just it's why I love movies. It's just it's it, I think one of the reasons it's their best film is that it's the one that has the most heart, even though it's violent. And it has, you know, it's a crime story and there's a lot of, you know, bad things that happen in it. But the character Francis McDormand plays, that just it gives a soul to the film that I think a lot of their films don't have, Uh, even though they're really, you know, well-written characters. I think it's their most warm film. And I love some of their films where they're very bleak and they're kind of, you know, you could argue that No Country for Old Men is very much a... You know, you, you don't particularly care about the characters. It's more about the, the execution of the plot and how brilliantly they direct it. But Fargo is one where you really care about the characters. And it's so funny, but it's not overtly a comedy. And it just, the you know, everything about it is just so compelling. It has a great plot. It's basically about a man, a car salesman played by William H. Macy, brilliantly played, perfectly cast. And he wants to get money and he decides to have his wife kidnapped by these two bandits. Um, And he everything goes wrong. It's just a film that has a great like setup and everything just goes wrong and it gets worse and worse. And watching it unfold is both hilarious at times and shockingly violent at other times. And at the center of it is Francis McDormand's character, which just adds a layer of you know, beauty to the film that I think is sometimes missing in their other films, even ones I love. But I think that's one reason. That's the main reason that this film is their. I think their best. Their their their. It's well. I think they've made a few masterpieces, but to me, this is their best film. Yeah, and I think Frances McDormand as Marge Gunderson is the best performance in any Coen Brothers movie. And I know she won Best Actress for it. And there are some people who are up there, like obviously Jeff Bridges in The Big Lebowski or like Oscar Isaac in Inside Lewin Davis. But she's just such an iconic character. Like, I know people list her up there at with like Hannibal Lecter as like some of the most iconic characters to have ever been in any movie. And I think that's totally fair. And one of the things I love about this movie is the way it starts off with the title, This is a True Story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. And it's totally made up. And I think that's incredible how they like started off with this. This is a true story. And it makes me think of, I can't remember... I think it's No Country for Old Men, where someone asked Tommy Lee Jones' character, is that a true story? And he says, it is true that it is a story. <laughs> and I think that's like such an incredible thing about the Coen brothers. I, I don't know why they did, I don't know why they chose to like include that in the beginning, but it's such, I think it's such an incredible like decision to do that. And it, it might make the movie have a little bit more gravity to it than otherwise would, but it's just, I don't know, I think of it as sort of a statement on like movie making and just stories in general that like for some reason people think a true story is more important than one that isn't true but if it has truth in it even if it's totally made up i think it can still be a good story and fargo has a whole lot of truth in it just about like the way people behave and just like the pettiness of some people but then it's got such an incredible person like marge at the heart of it and her husband 
which is really like the core of the movie is their relationship and it's so like down to earth and so perfectly played um i would like to read the final paragraph of roger debert's review of the film i think is so beautiful he says the dark and cold weigh down everything in the middle in their warm cocoon are chief marge and her hubby norm the painter of ducks without them fargo might have been in cold blood laced with unseemly humor the Coens sometimes seem to scorn their characters but their love for marge redeems fargo marge is the catalyst and her speech at the end is shakespearean in the way it heals wounds and restores order there's more to life than a little money you know you know that and here you are, and it's a beautiful day. That's just so beautiful. And, and, and like all the, that scene in the end, it just it it adds a layer of poetry to the film. That you know, there's some of their films that they're really brilliant genre exercises and they have great set pieces. But I think that one reason the film holds up so well is because of that character of Marge and her relationship with the other characters in the film. Yeah, it is like a, a centering piece. Like like I mentioned before, Oscar Isaac like makes inside Lewin Davis and he's in basically every scene of it. But Marge, I think doesn't show up in Fargo until maybe like half an hour, 20 minutes into it. But as soon as she's introduced, it's like, this is a central character and she's like the unifying force that makes the whole thing sort of work. And like saying it could have been in cold blood with a little bit of offbeat humor is like a really perfect way of describing it. And that she just like brings this like, just a heart to it is like a perfect way to describe it that like lifts the movie to a point where it like transcends what it could have been if someone else had made it and Frances McDormand in that role it's like it's hard to think of anybody else who could have done it as well as she did yeah it's 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 just I I, it's one of those films I understand that a movie like this isn't for everyone because it is pretty violent but it's hard for me to imagine someone that can be okay with the violence, not thinking it's just an absolutely wonderful film and one of the best of its uh, de- of that decade. I mean, wouldn't you say it's by far like one of your at least 10 favorite of the decade? Oh, for sure. It's like Thin Red Line for me is like the best of the 90s and everything else sort of falls into place after that. But Fargo is not very close behind. It's I mean, yeah, I to me, it's Unforgiven's like Unforgiven's up there. But Fargo is for sure like top five. I would put in my top 10 of the 90s both Fargo and Big Lebowski, and I would put Goodfellas, yeah, Pulp Goodfellas Fiction, sure. uh, Close Up, Abbas Karastami film, and also Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, or as it's called in the US, Dead Alive. But, you know, but yeah, Fargo is like top, definitely top five of the 90s for me. And I also really love the TV series. Yeah, it, it, it I does really love the TV does, show. And the third season yeah. of Fargo is one of the best seasons of television that I've ever seen. And the first one is really good, and the second one's really good. I recommend watching all of them. But the third, this most recent one, I thought was so unbelievable. And it's got David Thewlis in it, who was in uh, The Big Lebowski. And he plays sort of the villain in it and is absolutely perfect. But yeah, if anyone's never seen that, you should like check it out as soon as possible. I think about 25% of what makes his performance great are his teeth. <laughs> Yeah, in that third season is just so disgusting. But um, yeah, I I mean, you just want to real quick mention some of their other films. I mean, I I yeah. would say they they made about sixteen or seventeen films, and I would say I would say ten or a dozen of them, at least ten of them, I would give four and a half or five stars out of five. I mean, I think their worst is Lady Killers, and even something like Intolerable Cruelty is like it's it's not one of their best, but it's still like a really like solid rom-com like twisted 
Coen yeah, Brothers version of Yeah, got some very Coen Brothers touches in it uh, that you really wouldn't see in anything else. Burn After Reading and is you, the same way. Like, it's not a great movie. It's... Not it's somewhat close to not even being a good movie, but it's very enjoyable and there's really good performance in it. And that's the sort of movie where it is just like there's so many stars in it. Yeah. <laughs> that like Brad Pitt's in it, uh George Clooney's in it, just like pretty much anybody John Malkovich and uh Tilda Swinton, yeah, Tilda Francis Swinton. McDormand, yeah, JK Simmons. Like, yeah, it's just like a who's who of sort of a movie. And it's yeah, it's one that's sort of Wait. forgettable. I would put that pretty close to the bottom up i mean down there with the lady killers but like well you like hell caesar more than i did yeah i was gonna say hell caesar i think is i (laughs) I think it's like three and a half out of five i would give it four or four and a half it's like it's it's a little bit forgettable and it's not like there's any real sort of deep underlying message to it the way there is in something like fargo or inside lewin davis but just as like a celebration of 50s hollywood i think it works so perfectly well and you can just every their love for classic cinema just like shines through in every frame of that movie. And like when uh, what's his name Channing Tatum is like the Gene Kelly type in his sailor outfit, <laughs> the uh, song about the dames when they're off uh, in the ocean, and just the whole stuff about like the communist uh, <laughs> group of writers who are like kidnapping him. I think it's really incredible, and it's like one that really like captures Hollywood history really well and. It's definitely like sort of like a trivial sort of movie. There's not much to it, but just from like a pure enjoyment standpoint, I think that's that's one of the like most enjoyable movies I've ever seen. I think it's one of the most rewatchable movies I've ever seen. Like that's one I'd put on almost before anything else if I just wanted like put on a movie and just like watch it for two hours and just like laugh a couple times. And maybe I could like look at my phone every once in a while because it's not something like Fargo or anything like that where you have to pay attention the whole time. But I think that's sort of what makes it as fun as it is. And true grit, I, let, let me I say that is... you should never, no one should ever, ever look at their phone watching a movie. It's a horrible thing. I don't approve of that. That's something Carter thinks that's okay. Well, say it like something like Hail Caesar. That's okay. Maybe if you're watching uh, No Country for Old Men, you'd be less likely to look at your phone. But yeah, I think their true grit remake, I think is incredible. I think it's much, much better than the original. I think the original is a pretty average movie, just sort of elevated by a really good John Wayne performance. But I'd even go so far as to say Jeff Bridges is better as Rooster Cogburn than John Wayne is. But uh, yeah, what do you think about the True remake? Oh, well, I wouldn't even call it a remake. I would call it a more faithful adaptation of the original novel. I read the novel, and it does a really good job of capturing the dialogue and the the tone of the novel and i think that one of the great uh choices they made is to make the character that Haley steinfeld plays uh really she's kind of the lead of the film and she is more age appropriate than the original film and i just love how they i love the coen brothers that they don't care if their dialogue is difficult and it's and it is difficult in the series sorry true grit it's like it's very of like the West in the 1800s, which is, it feels like an artifact. It's like such like a historically specific sort of movie in a way that the one with John Wayne totally is not, which is like, feels very much like a sixties movie. Right. A sixties. It feels like a, it feels like a Hollywood version of, you know, it's a wet, it feels like a movie Western and the yeah. Coen brothers film feels very like authentic, but um, yeah. And I, I, I really like the man who wasn't there. With yeah, their black which is and white a really film. weird movie. <laughs> yeah, 
they they there's they've made a number of films where they it takes a sharp left turn. That one uh, takes a very know. sharp left turn. <laughs> right, Barton Fink does too. I think. Yeah, it does. I recently yeah. rewatched that for the first time in a long time and liked it significantly more than I than the first time. That one, like Hail Caesar, is very much about like old Hollywood and captures old Hollywood really well with like the Jack Warner um, type and Louis B. Mayer type producers and just like the struggling writer. And there's a really good uh, sort of uh, William Faulkner type uh, writer character in it. <laughs> I just every time I sort of forgot about it, but rewatching it this time, it was one of my favorite sort of like secondary Coen Brothers movie in any movie I've seen of theirs. But like something like the Hudsucker Proxy, I think is super forgettable. It's not a bad movie, but it's like I don't know. It's just it's one of their best looking film. It's one of their best looking like from production yeah. design standpoint and costumes. But yeah, it's it's not one of their best. I do. I mean, we haven't mentioned the very first one. Blood Simple is one yes. of the best like directorial debuts in the last forty a years. Super it's confident so, movie. Right. And um, I, I love M. Emmett Walsh, like probably yeah. his best, uh, you know, his, his biggest, you know, like major performance. I love the scene where he was reaching around the window to open it and uh-huh. Francis McDormand stabs him in the hand and he has to punch through the wall to pull the knife out oh, of his yeah. own hand. That's like a great <laughs> bit of like, you know, horrible, violent comedy in uh, their films. But yeah, that one's just, you know, they came out of the gate with that one and it's just so you know, it's well, it's just so well made. It feels like someone who'd been making movies for a long time. And yeah, they it's just a debut were, to make like know, the most seasoned director totally jealous. Like, how could you make something like that your first time out? Right. Well, I'm very excited for the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is in limited release now, is expanding more. I'm going to see it in Atlanta on Tuesday on my way to visit my family in Arkansas. So I'm going to go visit. Uh, I'm going to get some friends together to see it in Atlanta. And the whole world or whoever however many countries have it it will be on netflix this friday correct yes which is probably the way that i'm going to see it for the first time which is not ideal but hopefully it's good enough of a movie so to sort of transcend the netflix experience and i'm some seeing some people talking about it for oscar buzz which would be sort of i don't funny. think it's going to get anything but uh screenplay possibly and i don't think yeah. it will because, but I, I mean, it's, it has like an 81 on Metacritic, and people are saying like, like we kind of been saying with the Cone Brothers, even if it's not one of their 10 best, they're if it's like the 12th best film they've ever made, that still could be like one of the best films of the year because they're so good, yeah. they're so consistently good that they're that some of their like middling films are still like better than 98 percent of the films that are out. Yeah, for sure, and I'm really excited yeah. to see it, and it seems yeah, like I it's have got not watched some... the. I have not watched the trailer and I don't know any of the plots, but we should mention that it started out as a mini series mm-hmm. and they said, we're movie people. And they decided to <laughs> cobble it together into an anthology film. And it has, um, the cast, it has Tim Blake Nelson playing the titular Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Who's the only thing connecting the stories as far as I know, James Franco and, uh, and his first Coen brothers movie, which I'm sort of excited right. about has Liam Neeson, Tom Waits. And I love that someone said on Twitter, like, how is it possible that this is the first film from the Coen brothers that Tom Waits has been in? Like, hasn't he been in seven of them already? But that is a good uh, he seems like a perfect cast. It has Brendan Gleeson and Zoe Saul Kazan. It's nice to and, see him uh, in movies. He's a uh, iconic who? and unforgiven. Saul Rubinek. Have you seen uh, Unforgiven? He's like the writer in that one. Oh yeah, definitely. 
He's also in True right. Romance I, as the producer. <laughs> I treated you like a son! Well, I, I definitely am looking forward to seeing that, and uh, we'll review that. We're planning on coming back next episode talking about that and possibly Widows, the new yes. Steve McQueen film. Which I'm uh, crazy The African-American director, not the dead movie star. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, go see Widows and Buster Scruggs this weekend, because they are two of the movies totally most seeing that'll come out this year. I think Widows is going to be unbelievable. I think my expectations for that possibly might be too high that nothing can deliver on it, but I really hope it absolutely annihilates my expectations. It's just because Steve McQueen is that good. But yeah, those were our top five Coen Brothers movies. You want to run it down one last time before we go? Okay, my number five, Raising Arizona. Four, The Big Lebowski. Three, A Serious Man. Two, No Country for Old Men. One, Fargo. And mine was five, Inside Lewin Davis. Four, The Big Lebowski. Three, Miller's Crossing. Two, Fargo. And one, No Country for Old Men. Thanks for listening to us rant about the Cullen Brothers for a little while. <laughs> and uh, Shut the fuck up, Carter. Shut the fuck <laughs> up, Carter. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it, and we will be back next week. Sorry for the delay this week. My computer crashed and caused a whole problem. But yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.